As I open the word, why don't I begin in some prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us that you've shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have given your precious, your one and only son, so that you might receive to yourself sinners now forgiven, now born again, now renewed and made new because of what your son has done. And Father, your son has said, and he has promised that he will build his church. And so we ask that here at Gateway Bible, Lord, that you would come by your mercy to visit your people, that you would allow Christ to be seen in his glory, that you would help and comfort and motivate your people to love Christ in the hardships of their life, even this week that you might receive the glory through the way that we walk. So God, I pray that you would bless the word to our souls, allow the Holy Spirit to work and penetrate our hearts to shape us into greater Christ-likeness. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen. As was mentioned, I uh, get the opportunity to counsel young premarital couples, and I love doing that. Me and my wife love doing that. Because when they come in, they're so wide-eyed and happy and so in love. And you get to share all these great truths about what it means to be a husband in Christ, what it means to be a wife in Christ. And so it's great finding out their story, how they met, how God brought them together. But it's also selfishly a wonderful thing because we get reminded of our own commitment. It strengthens our marriage. We get reminded of how, uh, what the promises we made to one another. And I think you get this. Have you ever been to a wedding and you see the, the, the bride in all white, beautiful, and come down and the groom is looking at her with tears in his eyes and, and you see her walk down, you see them join together, you hear the vows spoken to one another, the commitment that they're making in, in the Lord, and then you nudge your husband or wife and say, do you remember that? Remember that? Remember when you said that? Remember when you promised that? There's something healthy about remembering our commitments, remembering what we have promised. And I think we get something of that in, in this chapter, in Luke 14. I think God wants to use this text to remind us of what he has committed to us and what we have committed to him. Because Jesus has a bride, right? We, this local body, is an extension of the bride of Christ. And Jesus has promised things to us. By his blood, he's brought in the new covenant, right? Where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, right? And, I'll, and I will bear your sins, what a beautiful promise that he's given to us. But we need to remember, we also made a commitment, didn't we? When we decided, when we came to Christ, we made a promise to him as well. And Luke 14 lays out what it is we really said. What did we commit when we said we would be disciples of Jesus? And that's what we see here. A little bit of context of Luke 14 Jesus had just been among the Pharisees, and he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor 
and how the Pharisees invited their close friends and relatives. So in other words, the religious leaders were playing favorites, and their guests were taking advantage of that. The Pharisees turned what should have been an outreach of ministry into a Hollywood red carpet. Now, how did Jesus respond to this? He gave this parable of the great banquet where the master told his slave to go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them all to come in so that my house may be filled. Jesus' point was clear, right? That the kingdom was not some exclusive club. It was for everyone. It was open to all, even the have-nots. Everyone was welcome to come. But though all people are invited, Jesus didn't want to give the wrong idea that becoming his disciple came at no cost. God's kingdom isn't some cheap party where one can enter or not enter with no consequences. No, it's more like the military. All are welcome to join. But if you join, it'll cost you your whole life. So Jesus confronts us even today with the same question that he posed to this large crowd. Are you a disciple? And if you truly are a disciple of Christ, there are two things you ought to be doing as a disciple. First, you ought to be keeping the characteristics of discipleship. Keep the characteristics of discipleship. And secondly, count the cost of discipleship. First, Keep the characteristics of discipleship. Look at verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. First thing to notice is who Jesus is addressing. He wasn't talking to the religious elite. He was talking to a large crowd, right? What he was about to say was for every person. The characteristics of discipleship, they weren't just for the apostles. They weren't just for preachers. They weren't just for religious leaders. This was for anyone who would seek to come and follow Christ. This had to be true of them. And he introduces what these characteristics are. These are traits that will prove who's true, who follow Jesus. He says that if a person is not known by these traits, then he cannot be my disciple. Another way to say that is he's not able. He or she's not able. They are incapable of being a disciple of Jesus. If a person doesn't manifest these characteristics in their life, then it displays that they're truly not Jesus' disciple. So these are so important to us. And the first characteristic is this. A disciple loves Christ above all others. A disciple loves Christ above all others. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this first trait, it's not a surprise to us, right? It goes right along with what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. If you remember in Matthew 22 that a lawyer asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment, and Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now this 
as soon as a Jewish person would have heard this, it would have been immediately familiar. Why? Because this was part of the Jewish Shema. This was a prayer that they would say every day. You know, when you, when you practice something every day, it really becomes part of you, doesn't it? It becomes a, a habit. It becomes part of your very life. And that was the whole point. For, for the Jew, they knew that this principle should guide their very life, that they should be directed by the principle that I must love the Lord my God with all of me, with all of me. And Jesus repeats this command, saying that to us, if you're going to follow Jesus, this principle needs to direct your life. It needs to rule your life. Now, in this text, Jesus describes this characteristic of discipleship negatively. He uses this term that makes us uncomfortable, hate. Now, we need to ask Does Jesus really mean that a disciple must hate his family relationships? Well, the answer is no, in short. Why? Because the fifth commandment forbids literally hating our father and mother, right? We're called to what? Honor father and mother. So we know he's not talking about literal hatred toward family. So what's happening here? Well, Jesus is using a Hebrew hyperbole here, where hate, it doesn't keep its literal connotation. Let me give you an example. In Genesis 29, it talks about Jacob, right, being married to both Rachel and her sister Leah. And it says this in in Genesis 29, 31. It says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Now that word unloved is actually literally hate. So it's really, now the Lord saw that Leah was hated and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now let me ask you, is there anywhere in the story where Jacob really hated Leah? No. We understand what was going on, right? What it means is Jacob had actually one heart for Rachel, right? His love toward Rachel was unlike any other and it didn't compare with what he felt for Leah. It was beyond compare. He loved Rachel more. And this is the understanding of our text. Jesus isn't calling for his disciples to literally hate his close relationships, but rather that love for them is no comparison for love for Jesus. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying that love and loyalty to him must be first place must be first place. This is seen a little bit more clearly in the parallel passage, Matthew 10, verse 37. Jesus states the same thing in a positive way. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So it's clear here, right? What's the first characteristic? When you said that you are going to follow Jesus, what should characterize you? A love for Christ that spans above all others. Do you remember that? Do you remember that that's what you said? Do you remember that that was what you committed to him? I remember um, getting a chance to counsel a person 
who is struggling having this affection, having this love for Jesus. He said, Mike, I hear the message coming out of the church that talk about how we should really love God and love Jesus. You know, I can say I respect God as God, and I understand who Jesus is. I respect who Jesus is, but I can't say I feel love for Jesus. Now, what do we say to something like that? How do we respond to that? I mean, it's true that our salvation in Jesus isn't defined by our emotional feelings, right? That would be dangerous. If our salvation was defined by how we felt, then the moment we didn't feel like loving, there's our salvation, right? Well, so we understand that. Our salvation is defined by God's truth, right? We aren't saved because we feel like we have an affection for God. No, we understand we are saved even despite our feelings sometimes. But our salvation in Jesus is not less than our affections. What I mean by that is although we may not always feel like we love Jesus because we understand that our emotions go up and down, but when you truly grasp who Jesus is and what he's accomplished in order to bring you to saving faith, to bring you to the Father, to forgive you of your sin, that the Lord of lords laid down his life to pay for your sins, oh, there will be affection, right? There will be love. There will be right affections. You know, 1 Corinthians 16.22 says this, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Love is commanded. Love is demanded. Love is right. Love cannot be absent in a believer. There must be love for God and Christ in their heart. But in this text... Jesus isn't just talking about any love. He's talking about the greatest kind of love, the supremest of love. And how do we know that? Because consider the relationships that Jesus compares us to. They're clearly the closest and dearest relationships. He says, he who does not hate father and mother. Who, what are your affections towards your father and mother? Right? Well, maybe for not all of you, not, maybe it's not all good. But what should it be in the perfect world? Well, they're the ones that gave you life. God willing, they're the one who raised you into adulthood. That's a close relationship. He says, if you do not hate wife, the one whom the husband is made into one flesh, how can there be anything closer than that? He says, then children, ones that are your physical heirs, they are literally half of you. Brothers and sisters, siblings, where you share parents, where you share lives, where you share experience, these are the highest and greatest of affections. Yet Jesus says love for Christ must supersede all of these. One commentator says this, the stunning juxtaposition of words like hate with father and mother is designed by Jesus to convey the truth 
that our love and devotion to him should be so great, so pure, so unqualified, and so unconditional that the fondest love we have for anything or anyone else will by comparison appear to be hatred. And that is what you committed to when you said, I will follow Jesus. It's good to be reminded of that. Now, we don't always allow ourselves to feel the significance of that command to us. Here are a few hard questions that really bring this to light. If God asked me to, could I leave my parents and go to the mission field? Or could I accept having my child go into the mission field to say goodbye to that relationship? Would you be willing to do that? If God were to take my wife or child in death, would I get bitter and quit God? If my family were to threaten and disown me because of my faith in Christ, would I renounce my faith? See, these questions bring how significant this command is, right? This is hefty. Now, that's heavy enough, isn't it? But more than family relationships, Jesus takes it a step further. He says, if you do not hate even your own life, your own life. Now, this is exactly opposite of what the world tells you, right? Doesn't the world teach you that I must learn to love myself before I can love to, to, to learn to love others, right? Doesn't the world teach us that there's no greater unalienable right than my own pursuit of my own happiness? You see, what the world views as a virtue, Jesus says we must be willing to give up in order to be his disciple. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you need to admit there's no greater love than self-love. There's no one you love more than yourself. As much as we might think that we love others, the truth is that there is no one we love more than ourselves. Why? Because we're with ourselves all the time. We serve ourselves all the time. We are keenly aware of our own wants and needs, so we labor to fulfill them. We're constantly serving ourselves, constantly fulfilling our own desires, constantly pampering ourselves, doing the things that make us feel better and will bring us comfort, right? When you come home from a hard day work, who are you loving? Number one, get myself a cold drink, pop me up in front of the couch, turn on the TV. I am serving all my wants and desires, It's not an overstatement to say, as Americans, we worship at the altar of our own comforts, right? Too often, we love ourselves above everyone and everything else. But Jesus says who his disciple is. He must love Jesus more than even themselves. So the question is, are you a disciple? Because if you're a disciple, this will be you. And if you are a disciple, then how has your supreme love for Jesus been seen today? 
this week, this month, this year? How has his supreme love been seen through you? You know, there's an age for kids where uh, they get into this thing where they always ask the question, why? Uh, It's a wonderful age where they're so curious, and so you tell them something, and they ask, why? And then you explain more, and they ask, why? And then you explain more, and they ask, why? And they keep asking, why? 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 You know, if you ask yourself, why? Keep asking yourself, why? Why do you do the things that you do today? Why? Why do I go to work? Why do I wake up in the morning? Why do I do what I do? If you can trace that answer all the way back, that your answer should be because I want to bring glory to Jesus because he is worthy. That is what it means to love Jesus supremely. If you trace the whys back up, it goes back to that answer. Because my Jesus is worthy and I love him. Right? Now, Jesus said something concerning his love. A quick way to see if we really love Jesus. He says, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Here's a quick and fast way to know if we are really loving Jesus. So we look at God's truth and we ask ourselves, are you obeying Jesus? Are you obeying Jesus' call to make disciples and make the light of the gospel seen to a lost world? Are you obeying Jesus and working heartily for the Lord in your workplace and not man-pleasing? Are you obeying Jesus by living with your wife in an understanding way and loving her as Christ does the church? Are you obeying Jesus by respecting and submitting your husband in all things? Are you obeying Jesus by loving one another and forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you? We can go on and on and on. Where is love seen? Am I doing what he says? So what is that area, dear saint? What is that area that you're not giving to Jesus? Where you secretly and quietly refuse to obey him? And remember what you promised when you said, I will follow. You promised supreme love. Supreme love. Love that would be proven through your obedience. And you know what? If you're like me, you're rightly saying, I fail. (laughs) I fail at this so often. I can't love God this way. And you're... You're right in a lot of ways. None of us have perfect love for Jesus. None of us have pure affection and devotion to him. But the hope's not in us, ultimately, is it? The hope is in what God has made us in Jesus. The same Jesus who said these words also told Nicodemus in John 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. See, we need to be born again to manifest this love. God will help our love grow more and more into what it should be. So yes, we feel inadequate, but our trust is in Christ who will help us to grow in this love. But let me ask you, do you have that supreme love as a disciple? 
Do you have that supreme love? So this is what it means to love Jesus supremely as a disciple. Keep the characteristics of your discipleship. So love Jesus with all that you are. Let it be seen in your life of joyful, heartfelt obedience to him. So the first characteristic of of a disciple is love Christ supremely. The next is this. A disciple must carry his own cross and follow. A disciple must carry his own cross and follow. Look at verse 27, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here we have defined the very definition of a disciple. A disciple is simply one who follows another. It's another word where we call Christian. A true Christian is a disciple. A disciple of Jesus is a Christian. In order to be a disciple, in order to be a true Christian, you must follow Christ. And we understand what that means. It simply means that our lives are led and guided by Jesus as Lord. A disciple doesn't live by his own desires, by his own dreams. He submits himself to the direction and guidance that Christ gives. But the disciple must not only follow, he needs to carry his own cross. Needs to carry his own cross. Now, what does that mean? Taking up our cross. That's become a common term for us, right? Take up your cross. I bear my cross, right? We understand that statement. But in the context of this teaching of Jesus, in this large crowd, this would have been a controversial and shocking statement. The hearers at that time would have recognized the cross not as a religious symbol, but what? a means of execution. It was the way the Romans killed and punished the worst of criminals. It would have been very familiar, this graphic process of crucifixion where the criminal would suffer, be nailed to a cross, hung until dying, usually because of asphyxiation. And a large part of that process was where the criminal was forced to publicly carry the instrument of their death upon their back and bring it to their, to their own place of execution. On the way there, what would they be met with? Jeers, mocking, all forms of hateful speech, hostility, right? And this is what Jesus meant. This is what he meant by taking up your cross, they must be willing to potentially endure what those criminals endured. Following Jesus would not be a life of ease. By being a disciple, you identified yourself with Jesus. And what did it bring? Mocking, threats, slander, persecution, and even possibly death. If one would be a disciple, he or she must be willing to endure all the potentially horrible things that comes with identifying with Jesus. That's the call of a disciple. And that is what you promised when you said you would follow Jesus. That's what you committed to. Are you willing to bear the reproach, to take the hardships, 
that come with committing to Jesus. You know, I like to watch uh, music shows, talent shows, like American Idol, like The Voice. And it's interesting to find their backstory, right? What's the common theme behind these shows? Is these people leave their hometown, right? They leave everyone they know. They work a horrible nine-to-five job being a waitress or whatever, and they work hard. They, they, they hit every restaurant they can, every bar they can, any place where they can play music, whether it be on the street, and they suffer. They are willing to suffer. They are willing to give all of themselves and everything about themselves in order to chase what? A dream. A dream that I can sing in front of thousands. A dream that's ultimately for themselves, right? You know, I think there's something of that that needs to be in the disciple. What are you willing to risk for the sake of Christ? These people are willing to give up everything, leave everyone they know, and and suffer a life of, of horrible labor for what? A dream. But what is the believer, what is the true disciple willing to endure because of Jesus, right? One of the greatest fears is that one day I meet Jesus and say, I never risked anything for you. That would be heartbreaking because Jesus is worth, worth the risk, isn't he? One example of this is this hymn that I know that many, if not all of you, are familiar with. The hymn, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. You remember that song? The story of this hymn comes out of the Indian province of Assam. And it tells about the first converts of that village. A husband and wife, they were severely persecuted because of their newfound faith. The report said that when asked to recant or see his children murdered, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. After seeing his children killed, he reportedly said, the world can be behind me, but the cross is still before me. And after seeing his wife pierced by the arrows, he said, though no one is here to go with me, Still, I will follow Jesus. Now, according to the missionary, when he returned to the village, a revival broke out, and those that had murdered these first converts came to faith themselves. The Welsh man passed along these reports to the famous Indian evangelist Sandhu Sundar Singh, and he would later pen this famous hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. We are so far removed to what it means to take up our cross. We moan and groan if we need to pick up someone from the church. (laughs) Right? We are so far removed from what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. But this is what you promised. This is what you promised Jesus when you said, I'm going to follow. It's good to remember that. What trials and suffering are you enduring because you follow Christ? Maybe you have a family that forbade you to become baptized by threat that they're going to disown you. Maybe it's a hostile workplace where people degrade you for being a Christian. 
Maybe it's a friend who won't talk to you because of your views on marriage and sexuality and gender. As you go through all these hardships, do you do it with a deep-seated joy and endurance? This is what it means to take up your cross. A true disciple of Jesus will daily choose to carry his own cross and follow whatever the cost. But you know what might be even worse than enduring the pressure and persecution from the world is if you don't feel a strain at all. If you don't feel anything, has following Jesus cost you nothing up until this point? Then maybe it's time to take a hard look at your discipleship in Jesus. Maybe you've been purposely hiding. Maybe you need to ask if you truly picked up your cross to follow Jesus in the first place. Either way, don't be fooled. Being a disciple must cost you, and it will cost you. And that leads us to our next point, counting the cost of discipleship. As a disciple of Jesus, you must count the cost of discipleship. Now, in verse 28 through 33, Jesus provides two illustrations that call us to count the cost of our discipleship. The first one is about building a tower, and the second one is about going, going to battle with a king. Now, the first illustration asks this, can you afford to build? Can you afford to build? Look at verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So how does this illustration of building a tower even compare with being a disciple? Well, he says there, a builder needs to calculate. The word gets its meaning from actually counting using pebbles, right? Remember what you do with your, as a kid when you counted marbles? It's like that. A builder needs to see if he has the resources to finish the job because it would be really foolish for that builder to begin construction and found out right in the middle that they couldn't do it. That ugly skeleton of a building, that unfinished thing, would be a testament to their foolishness, right? Well... Jesus is saying that same thing. In that same way, a person that seeks to follow Jesus needs to calculate if he's able to finish the job of being a disciple. A disciple must consider if he or she is willing to give all that it takes to love Jesus supremely and to take up their cross and follow. And it is infinitely more shameful for a person to profess Jesus only to find midway that they're unwilling to follow, to find out that they're, turn, they're going to turn back and become apostate. You know, it's like a marriage, right? If you're fortunate enough to make it to the altar, by the time those vows are read, you better be really, truly convinced that you're ready to commit to one another, right? Marriage isn't a half-hearted, maybe kind of institution, right? When you get up there, it's an all-or-nothing kind of thing. It's a serious covenant. When you reach the altar, you need to be ready to say, till death do us part and mean it. The same goes with following Jesus, marrying Christ. You must realize what you're saying 
You need to realize the covenant you're making. You must seriously convince that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and will always be your Lord and Savior. Not just at that moment, but that every moment after. I'll live as him with being my Lord. There ought to be no cold feet. Jesus demands full commitment and no turning back. Now, this is not really shared in evangelism today, is it? We, and we rightly want to welcome people to come to Christ, and we should. We should invite them. We should say, just like Jesus, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and Jesus will give you rest. We should invite them. But there still needs to be something of this, that yes, come, but if you come, you better mean it. If you come, you better not turn back. If you come, you better be ready to finish. If you come, you must be ready to commit all of yourself. There needs to be something of that when people come to Jesus. That he is worthy of all my commitment. Now, later Jesus would show that building a tower is closer to that idea of discipleship than he thought. Ephesians 4, Jesus speaks through his apostle in Ephesians 4. It says this in Ephesians 4.15, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. See, later Jesus would speak through the apostle and show you that discipleship, it is actually more about building than you thought. What are we building? We're building a building for sure. And what is it? It's the church. It's Christ's bride. We're building up that wondrous bride. And how does it get built up? By what each and every one of us give by what each and every one must do to work, to make it grow. Being committed to that. Every individual part is involved in building up of the body. It's a life of building up this church of Jesus Christ. It can't be the pastor alone. It's not the elders alone. It's not the home group leaders alone. It has to be every single person. And this is this lifelong task of what we call discipleship. It's this lifelong journey of taking, going from a sinner to becoming perfected in Jesus and everything that comes in between. And he says, are you committed to build? Will you build? This is going to take work. This is going to take labor. This is going to take blood, sweat, and tears to be willing to do the work to build. He says, but if you're a disciple, are you willing to build? Will you count the cost for building Christ's church? Are you willing to be his instruments for him building up his church as he promised? Will you commit to enduring all the labor, all the effort, all the pain it takes to push each and every one of God's people to maturity in Christ? This is what discipleship is. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Are you fully committed to Jesus and his work? 
Are you devoted to finish that work to the very end? And for the true disciple, when posed with that question, can you afford to build? The response is yes, I am committed to the end to this. So count the cost. And the second illustration is this. It asks this, can you afford to battle? Can you afford to battle? Look at verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Now, let's stop there for a second. That doesn't take a math genius, right? 10,000 versus 20,000. It's pretty clear who's going to win, right? That's, that's, that's not a hard calculation, Verse 32, or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So this illustration poses a different problem than the first one. In the building of the tower, the builder has a right to say, I will build it or not. He can participate or not. But this is different. The king can't say this. The king can say, I'm not going to go to war. No, someone is coming. Another king is coming with all his army. Not participating is not an option, right? So how does this compare with being a disciple? The first illustration, Jesus tells a person, consider, can you afford to follow him? This illustration, Jesus tells a person to consider if you can afford not to follow him. Can you not can you not afford to follow him can you afford not to follow him you see discipleship to jesus is not you could take it if you want or leave it if you want venture there are consequences to refusing so in this illustration if the king refuses to surrender he's going to face the consequence of 20,000 men descending upon his kingdom And what's he really talking about there? The person who refuses to surrender to Jesus will inevitably face him as their ultimate judge. Listen to the words of Jesus, and you hear this in what he says, Matthew 7, verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus says, if you don't follow me, if you don't listen to me, if you don't heed my words, there's coming a great fall. The clear implication is that you must surrender to Jesus and become his disciple. In the exact same way a king needs to surrender to a king with a greater power than him. And this is seen in verse 33. He gives another characteristic of discipleship. What must he do? He must give up all his possessions. What is that? That's a picture of surrender. I have to surrender everything because he's the Lord. He's the one with ultimate power. He is greater than I am. Now, do we need to literally give up all our possessions? No. Just as hating all other relationships 
And taking up the cross, they were hyperbole. They were figurative. So also giving up possession, it's hyperbole. It's figurative. Jesus doesn't literally expect his people to give up everything, sell everything they own in order to follow him. But a true disciple of Jesus realizes that he doesn't truly own anything. We don't own anything. Everything in his possession ultimately has been given from God as a stewardship. And he must be willing to part from anything he owns for the sake of Christ. So is that the way you see your possessions? Can you afford not to surrender? The answer is no. The answer is no. So the question, can you afford to battle? The answer is an emphatic no. You can't afford to not surrender to Jesus. So here's a great reminder to us. Are you a disciple? That question is posed to us. Are you a disciple? Then keep with the characteristics of what it is to be a disciple. Love Christ supremely. Take up your cross and follow him. Be willing to endure all the hardship that comes with following him. And then count the cost of discipleship. Be willing to build. It takes every believer. Be committed to it to the end. No turning back. No cold feet. And don't make the mistake of not surrendering. Right? You can't afford to. You know, later in this gospel, Jesus would make clear why he's worth this kind of discipleship. It may not have been clear to the peoples he was talking to at the time, but by the end of the gospel, it was clear. Why was Jesus worthy of calling people to do this? Because he would take upon his cross. He would bear all our sin. He would carry that cross to the place of his execution, and he would allow himself, the Lord of glory, to be pierced through and killed, punished for all our sin. That's what makes him worthy of this kind of discipleship. That's the end of the story. Is he worthy to you? Did you promise, did you commit to him to be his disciple? Maybe you've never bowed the knee, bowed the knee to Christ. Let me ask you, what have you done with Jesus dying for your sin? What have you done with Jesus being raised to life? Have you counted the cost? Let me tell you, if you're not bowed the knee to Christ, you need to count the cost. You can't afford it. You can't afford to not surrender to this king. But as believers, when you watch a wedding, you get reminded of that promise, the promise that the husband made to the wife and the wife made to the husband. Let, tonight, let today be the day you remember that Christ committed to us, giving his life, pouring his blood out to bring about that new covenant that we'd be forgiven in sin for our sin. But then remember what you committed. Love him. Take up your cross. Count the cost. May he be glorified in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your truth is sufficient and it's applicable to what we're going through even today lord i pray that you would help us dear god if we have not done these things not acted like your disciples help us to repent help us to come to you 
And help us to be reminded and rekindled in our commitment to Christ, to love him and to be willing to take up our cross and risk for him. Because the Lord Jesus, you are worthy. You loved us to the cross. So Lord, help us to commit to you in the things that we've committed to as your disciple. For your glory, for the Father's glory, we thank you and praise you now. In Christ's name, amen.